0: Well, good morning, everyone, it's 2019. Welcome back, I don't know about you, but I love Christmas, I love the holidays, but there's a part of me that loves getting back in the routine and getting all of them decorations down, although my wife does that, I just carry the heavy boxes for her. Uh, anyway, we are glad to be back in 2019. If you're new with us today, uh, boy, we're so glad we'll have a special time that Monty will talk about in a minute to have you come, uh, get a chance to, to meet Monty and I, and we get to meet you, and so I'd love to see you later. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter two as we continue teaching through the book of Luke. Uh, you know, during the month of December, we taught the first section, the first one and a half chapters of Luke, and we'll be in Luke a long time. And this morning, we start a five-week mini-series called, as you can see, ID, the promised son of the living God, meaning ID in the sense of identification. That's what Luke does in these next few sections. He identifies who Jesus is. And so uh, to do that this morning, I wanna start with a little overview of the book of Luke. I wanna start with Luke the man. Luke is the author of both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You don't, probably don't know this, and I didn't know it to I researched it, but the whole New Testament is made up of 138,020 words in the Greek. The books of Luke and Acts are made up of 37,933 Greek words, which means Luke wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote 27% of the New Testament. So if you play some Bible trivia and that comes up, you'll be a winner because of me. Uh, He was a Gentile, we know by birth, and Luke and Paul first came into contact in the country of Turkey and Tros during the second of Paul's three missionary journeys. On this particular journey, Luke was with Paul and his team uh, going from Tros to Philippi where he witnessed the beating and imprisonment of Paul and Silas, Acts 16 tells us that. So they experienced some difficulties together. Most think Luke came to Christ through one of uh, Paul's interactions in the city of Tros. He uh, obviously, as a physician, he was a well-educated man, and uh, <clears throat> that enabled him, in some ways, to this advanced writing. He he wrote. Uh, the New Testament or wrote the book of Luke in this advanced Greek. It's sort of like the difference between me writing a paper and a PhD scholar writing a paper. You would, there wouldn't be much difference, but you'd be able to tell a little bit, right? So (laughs) scholars have said about Luke uh, that he, that a perfectionist, if you're a perfectionist, you will love Luke. One writer said he has the mind of a scientist, the pen of a poet, and the heart of an artist. And through his pen and certainly uh, by the empowerment and overseeing of the Holy Spirit, he gives all who read this book sort of this front row seat of the promised Son of the living God. Luke uniquely, out of all the gospel, presents Jesus as the complete embodiment of God's concern and passion for helpless humanity. And also, more than 30 times in this gospel, we'll see Luke point our gaze forward to heaven, to eternity with Christ. Focus there, Luke says, over and over. And not surprisingly, he presents the Son of God as the great physician. The great physician who's come to heal our sin, sick, heart, and worlds. So, for the purpose of Luke, why did he write this book? We'd go back, flip if you would, just a couple pages over in your Bible, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Monty touched on this a little bit as we started in this book, and I want to take us just a little bit further here. Luke 1 through 4. <clears throat> Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, he says, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. The word there is actually excellence, an excellent account, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So as we, we get into the purpose here, we need to know the timeline. It's been about 35 years since the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Paul is tra- Luke is traveling with Paul and what he's seeing is that first century or first generation Christians are dying off and there is a chance because of that for Christ's teachings, the Lord's teachings to become distorted, maybe to become myths or fables. So under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, he realized that the church needed this unified, comprehensive, precisely researched, ruthlessly vetted account of the life of Christ. And in that, we have the book of Luke. He talks about in these first few verses here also that he interviewed first-hand eyewitnesses who knew Jesus best. When you think of Luke writing this book, you think of Lee Strobel. You know Lee Strobel who wrote The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel wasn't a Christian, tried to disprove that Christ rose from the dead. In that process, he was doing his own research. He came to Christ, and then he began interviewing those experts in the areas that knew Christ and, and wrote this book, The Case for Christ. That is sort of Luke's approach here. He spent time with people and interviewed people who had seen Jesus eat, and I thought to myself, maybe even take a nap and snore, right? He did, he interviewed those who did ministry with him, who saw his transfiguration, who witnessed his agony at the Garden of Gethsemane. He spent time and interviewed those who saw him go through the incredible 39 lashes of the Roman scourge and his death on the cross, and those who experienced the utter thrill of seeing Christ alive again after his death. He then assembled and vetted all this material and began to write what we have now as Luke. Now, Luke could have taken the dragnet approach. How many of you are old enough to remember the detective show Dragnet? What was the famous line in that? Just the facts facts and nothing but the facts. But he did not do that. He just didn't write factual information in chronological order. But instead, he crafted this, and we'll see this through the book, this compelling narrative that conveys the beauty, the irony, the complexity, and the excitement of God's coming to earth in the person of Christ to save us from our sins. Howard Hendricks would echo that. He used to say all the time, it is a sin to make the Bible seem boring. Luke did not sin. His writing is not boring. So the purpose, we get down to verse three and four, says that so that you, most excellent Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Theophilus, Theophilus, most say, was not an actual person, but it was a word that meant friend of God. Therefore, Luke is really saying here to all the friends of God from this age to eternity who read this book, I write it so that you may have certainty concerning the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord used this book for 2,000 years for all who've read it, to do just that. So in light of that, let's take a minute to look at our backdrop for our text this morning. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, back at 22 through 28. So here's the backdrop for our narrative this morning. Starting in verse 22. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in this Jesus, in this child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. So our backdrop this morning is important as we sort of set the stage here. To understand this fully, we must go back to verse 21. In verse 21, it says that Jesus was eight days old and he was experiencing the ceremony of circumcision. That's our first of three ceremonies from verse 21 to 28. The second ceremony as it talked about in our text, is the presentation of the firstborn son, which was all according to Jewish law. And the third ceremony is what the writer Luke called the purification of Mary, that a mother after birth could not enter the temple for at least 33 days. And so she came there, and that third ceremony, the ceremony of purification, Uh, usually involved the sacrifice of a lamb for most people unless you were poor and you would bring two birds, which we see that Mary and Joseph did. And so we take away from that uh, sort of these facts. One is Mary and Joseph are law-abiding Jews. They care about what Yahweh said and they are obedient and faithful. And secondly, we take away that Jesus was approximately six weeks old at this time. You have eight days of circumcision, 33 days from that point to, for the purification period, and so we have a six-week-old baby, and, uh, and here we have the setting. Then in verse 25 through 28, Joseph and Mary encounter a man named Simeon in the temple, and here's what we're told about it. We're told he was full of the Holy Spirit. We'll see more about that later. He said he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. In some ways, that is a some surmising or summarization of what an Old Testament Jew would be doing while waiting for the promises of God and the Messiah. He had been waiting for that and hoping for that. And the Holy Spirit, said, had told him that he would not die until he saw this Messiah. And the Holy Spirit prompted him, it said, to go to the temple on this particular day. So that's an indication to us that Simeon wasn't a priest. Simeon was a law-abiding Jew. He was a worshiping Jew, but he didn't work there on a daily occasion. God prompted him to go. And Simeon says, seize this child. And God tells him, Simeon, this is the one you've been waiting for. Now, under normal circumstances, if you have a six-week-old child and you walk into Fellowship Bible Church, into the temple, into the church, and someone you don't know comes up and says, let me hold your baby, what are you going to say to him? No, thank you. I love Jesus. I love you, but you ain't touching my baby, right? This is a God thing. You have Mary and Joseph who are obeying faithfully and walking with God full of the Spirit. You have Simeon who has been obeying and faithfully walking with God full of the Spirit. And God brings them together and they know. And so the scriptures tell us Simeon takes the baby in his arms, he raises him up, and he gives two oracles or two prophecies, or two declarations of who this baby is. So, at six weeks old, they've been identifying Jesus all the way from the beginning. But at six weeks old, Simeon prophesizes to who this baby is. He said, "You want to know who he is? I'll give you two words: salvation." This baby is salvation, and this baby is a divider. This baby is division. Let me read verses 29 through 32. The first oracle, or the first prophecy, is Simeon identifies who Jesus is. Simeon takes him up in his arms. He blesses God, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, he says, it is time for me to die. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. He is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. God had promised Simeon, as I said, that you won't die until you see this child. And so verse 30 tells us, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now picture this, if you would, this, this older man holding this baby in his arms, connecting eyes to eyes, and he, as he holds this baby, he says to that baby, my eyes have seen salvation. Simeon is saying, this is incarnate salvation, this baby that I am holding is all of God's redemptive plan from the past who's now coming to the present and will be all for the future. This is him. He is directly linking salvation and salvation alone with this baby Jesus. So there's great joy in this prophecy, great joy in this oracle. And then in verses 31 and 32, he declares that God's promised salvation is for all peoples. He says for Jews and for Gentiles. Now, we remember back a few chapters. We know the Christmas story. The shepherds had mentioned this. They said, I bring you good news at his birth of a great joy for all people. And now what Simeon does, he adds clarity to that declaration. He is saying the extent of the reach of salvation in Jesus is universal. Now, I'm not talking about universal salvation and that everyone is saved, but the, he's talking about it here the universal reach of God's salvation for all people. Another word may be international. For every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation, he is here for all peoples. God's promised salvation had been we know flowing through the line of the Jewish people, but all along it was meant to go outside of the Jewish people, to all peoples. Imagine this, sort of picture this in our mind. Imagine God's purpose of salvation had been flowing like a river within these banks of Judaism. And the river itself was uh, the nation of Israel. It was salvation, and it's flowing there. It's for God's people. It's in those banks, and we saw in the Old Testament from time to time a tributary form and a leakage form in those banks where God's salvation for the Jewish people would leak out to the Gentiles. We remember the book of Jonah not too far ago. We remember the book of Ruth. There were these touch points where this river This salvation, this river of salvation for the Jews would leak out. And here, Simeon says, there's been a flood. The banks have been destroyed. This this salvation for the Jewish people has flooded over the banks to the whole world. And the flood's name is Jesus. Like we would name a hurricane, Simeon names a flood here. And his name is Jesus. I love verse 32. It's looked over sometimes. But it gives me a picture of Simeon. Simeon had been looking for the consolation of Israel, the coming of the Messiah. And the way he would look for that is he would pray about it and he would go to the Old Testament scriptures to read about who the Messiah is, when he would come, what the signs would be. And here in Isaiah, here in Luke 2, he quotes Isaiah 49, where God is foretelling about his son, the Messiah. And he says this, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, although God's salvation is for all peoples, that salvation will not be received by all. Look at Simeon's words to Mary in verses 34 and 35. The whole mood of the text changes at this point. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that Thoughts from many hearts will be or may be revealed. We love to talk about the ID or identification of Jesus being salvific, being salvation. We don't love talking about part of who Jesus is, part of his identification. And you think about this from the very beginning. Remember, Simeon could have said a lot of things, but he said two words, salvation and division. The second prophecy about Jesus is not joyful. We have incarnate salvation, but he was a child who will also divide. This idea that this child will be a source of division for Israel. It goes back to the cornerstone prophecy. And you may want to write this down. Isaiah eight twenty-eight. Or Psalm 118, where the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It is a stone of stumbling for the Jews, a stone of offense to the Jews. Simeon tells Mary that her son will be a sanctuary for some, and for others it will be destruction. This child, as the son of the Most High, is the one who will be opposed by the very people that he came to save. He will be a controversial figure, Simeon is saying. We know that to be true if we know just a little bit of his own life. A lightning rod of controversy and anger. He comes and divides, and actually, we're taught in the gospel, he will make divisions in families. So Happy New Year. There's your Happy New Year sermon, right? Now, I don't know about your family, but I know mine and my wife's family And I know throughout our years of knowing and following Christ, we would have to make stands. We would have to, and we didn't do that perfectly in any way. And I'm not talking about being divisive. I'm talking about Jesus being a divider, meaning we would make stands about our belief in Christ and we would feel the intensity of their wrath and anger. We must get to a place. This is where God wants us to get to. This is a takeaway for us this new year. We must get to a place where we internalize at a high level, meaning we are aware, at, aware of this truth that I'm about to tell you, what Simon is telling us. We are aware of it deep in our souls that without God's incredible kindness and mercy to us, we too would oppose him. We too, we too would reject him. Just that is enough. Just that alone is enough to make us follow him urgently. Verse 35, the division motif continues as Simeon tells Mary that because of this child, He says, a sword Mary will pierce your own soul and the results will be that many hearts will be revealed about what they believe and what they love and what they care about and what their priorities are. Now, certainly Simeon's words speaks to the grief that Mary experienced when she saw her own son crucified as a common criminal, no doubt. But there's more to it, I think. This sword context in this chapter and throughout Luke gives us an idea of what this division imagery may mean. Just write down Luke chapter 12, 51 through 53. You can read it later. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He left out son-in-law against the mother-in-law, right? We know this from Luke. From the other Gospels, that the ministry of division by Jesus can be asked and clarified in one question. Who are you going to be supremely loyal to? That's what he means here. Remember in Mark chapter 8, what did Jesus tell his disciples? In the midst of all they're doing, they got busy lives, what did he tell them? He said, you, what? Follow me. about John chapter six? He gives an incredible hard sermon about what it meant to follow him. And they all left but the 12. And he looked at them and said, why don't you leave too? He's, he's calling them to this supreme loyalty to him above all. Matthew 8, he said to one young man, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. We know this is what he's calling us to. The sword of division comes from those who are willing to have Christ as Lord over all and to be loyal to him above all. I'm not speaking of perfection here. I'm speaking of a heart orientation that says Jesus Christ is the only way I am supremely loyal to him above all, above everything versus those who are not. To Mary, this means in her own heart that she will experience the pain of that, the pull of this division. Even just in our next text, Monty's going to dig into this next week in Luke chapter 2, but just our next section in Luke, we see the beginnings of this. Jesus goes missing for three days. Imagine your 12-year-old son. He goes, you don't know where he is. You're in this huge town of Jerusalem. You're anxious. The, the, The text actually uses the words, they were in great distress And they finally catch up with him and he's not in a candy store, folks. He's in the temple having a conversation with theologians and they, you know, the first parental response I could think of is, oh, you're alive, but you ain't gonna be alive for long, right? (laughs) And he looks at them. Jesus looks at his parents and says, summarized. Where'd you think I'd be? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? So at 12 years old, Mary is confronted with the reality that there's somebody way more important. There's something way more important to Jesus than her and something more important to him than them. This is just the beginning of this sword piercing her soul. Luke chapter eight. Jesus is teaching inside this crowded home, and his mother and brothers are looking for him, and they don't have text, they don't have phones, so she sends a message. She can't get to him. She sends a message to say, tell Jesus that his mama's outside. The message works its way through the crowd, gets to Jesus, yo, Jesus, your mama's outside. She wants to talk to to you, and Jesus' response was what? My mother and brothers are those that hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus is saying that the priority at the very beginning of his ministry, the priority of spiritual family supersedes that of his biological family. That's not disrespect to Mary. That's the reality of the sword of division. Jesus is demanding that. Simeon says, this is what he does. He divides us. We feel this pull to be loyal to something or someone and Jesus keeps, keeps putting this tension inside of us and he says, no, I am first. And when I'm not first, everything else is first. You choose. This is, this is the book of Joshua where Joshua said, for me and my house... We won't do it perfect, but our orientation of our hearts toward God is that Jesus will be Lord over all, above over everything else. And if that causes division, so be it. He's asking, what is your priority? And then he says, your number one priority in life reveals your heart. Many hearts will be revealed. Either Jesus is Lord or something or someone else is Lord. Simeon said to Mary, the sword will pierce your soul. It will cause a division, this tension in your own heart, Mary. You will love Jesus, speaking about Mary, and you'll want that devotion from him like any mom would want. But it will come a time where you, Mary, are called to be supremely devoted to him as Savior, not as a son. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. Now here's the good news with Mary. It tells us she treasured these things in her heart. And here's what we know about Mary. In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus had ascended to the Father and the Spirit of God came upon the people... Where was Mary? She was right there with the hundred folks or so in Acts 2. She became this devoted follower of Christ. And then as we finish up, I want us to take a minute to look at the lives of Simeon and Anna. I've already talked about Simeon. Let's read a little bit about Anna here in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuah, Of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting, to speak of Christ to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon, here's how Luke uses Simeon and Anna in this text. He uses them as character witnesses. He emphasizes, as you notice, he emphasizes their daily practices. He emphasizes their character. He emphasizes their uh, what they love, what they hope for. And ultimately, he emphasizes their priority. He does so so that us who read it will trust what Simeon and Anna says. We have a bad character witness. You don't trust what they say in a court of law. Simeon says these are great character witnesses, folks. These are the priorities of their lives. You can trust what they say about the Lord Jesus. But they're also included, I believe, to be a model for us. I'm not saying that Simon and Anna are some kind of biblical hero. There's one hero in the scriptures, but, but there are these things about their lives and the priorities of their lives and the orientation of their hearts toward God that you and I can be encouraged by and challenged by and learn from that may help us as well. In verse 25, it lays out three things about Simeon that I want to highlight. It says he was devoted to God, that he, he was a God-centered person, that he operated in a way that God was in the center of his life and everything else was done based upon based upon who God is and what God says. And that's the way he lived. Again, not perfectly. If we knew Simeon, he's a sinner like us, needing grace like us, saved by the grace of God like us. But there was an orientation of life. That's why he was in the temple. That's why he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Then secondly, mentioning that, he was looking forward eagerly for the Messiah. He was living for the future. He was living for eternal things. He was trusting and believing the promises of God, hoping in God and his word. And then thirdly, in verse 25, it says that Simeon was empowered by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, aware of God's presence. Psalm 139, it says, Uh, The psalmist asked the question, where can you and I go to escape the presence of God? The answer is nowhere. There was awareness of the Spirit of God in the life of Simeon, who placed himself under the Word of God, guided by the Word of God, and maybe more than anything, desiring that the Spirit of God lead him. It's a beautiful challenge for us. And then Anna. Anna. Simeon tells us, or Luke tells us. She was married for seven years. And at the seven-year mark, her husband died. And from that point on, she's 84 now, she lived as a widow. Day and night, she says, her practice was to pray and to fast in the temple. She was a godly woman in the midst of a very difficult life, a life with no husband, a life with no children but a life with her priorities and orientation of a heart toward God, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And it said, because of that, look, God gave her, God honored her to see the Messiah and be one of the first to broadcast this is he. I love this because you and I are still in this story the story is not over yet. What are you looking for, and what are you hoping for? Christ has come. They're getting to see Christ on His first coming. The scriptures tell us all the time: He two things are going to happen. Either He's going to come back the second time. Are you living for that, or? You and I are gonna take our last breath if we know Christ, see him face to face. Are you living for that? It's the same hope that Simeon and Anna were living for, to live for eternal things in the midst of all that life brings. It asks this question. 2019 is a great time to ask on the front end the question and answer it. What is your priority? What is your orientation toward God? Are you a God-centered person? Will you operate your life? You want to grow and change in such a way that your priorities, people would describe you as a person, your priorities about God and his kingdom. Especially, and here's the division part, especially in a culture that is so much here and now, a culture that says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die and become worm dirt. What a difference. I love how Peter puts it, 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, all this life, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct, in godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Lastly, in verses 39 through 40, It talks about the obscure growth of Jesus. So we go from six weeks, and the next time we see Jesus next week with Monty, Monty's going to present Jesus as a 12-year-old. And so Jesus goes away and grows in obscurity. He grows in wisdom and knowledge and character. And my takeaway from that is none of us grow just by coming to church on Sunday. We grow in the obscurity and the solitude. That's a first step. If your life is not marked by obscurity and solitude as you open the scriptures and pray, it's impossible to grow spiritually. So I asked this morning, what is your so what? And maybe the big question is just to take a minute to say, you know, what is it for me that is priority? That your heart can be revealed. It can be revealed to you to say, you know, Jesus is Lord over all or something else is. And maybe identify what that thing is that that is actually uh, fighting for that loyal response from us. Take a minute to ask the question, so what?